0: All right, right, well, brothers and sisters, tonight we're going to our lesson is going to be entitled, When My Children Disappoint Me, and we're going to be covering a a large area of scripture. We're going to be covering 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19, and if you think about that uh, being with the title, has that ever happened? Have your children ever disappointed you? I would dare say, if you have children, it it has happened. And I'm sure all of us adults in our lives have caused some kind of heartache. I know being, you know, I know I caused some heartache with my parents, so I know it's happened to us too. And to go through our lesson tonight, we're going to draw our attention to. To David and his life, and to and to his children. But specifically speaking, we're going to be focusing on three of David's children, and that is that is Amnon, uh, Tamar, and Absalom. Now, have any to do this? Have any of you ever been to like a Broadway type play, like a community theater play? Any of y'all have, have y'all done that? Have y'all had that experience? You know, you go in, you sit down. And usually the story is done in different acts, act, you know, act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Well, tonight I would like us to do that. Because there's, so, there, there's just so many, uh, there's so much, uh, the material is so massive, uh, we're going to pretend that we're going to the Georgia Performing Arts Center and we're going to watch a play unfold in front of us. And this play is called When My Children Disappoint Me. Now, it has three acts. And it's not a comedy. It's not a drama. And as we attend this play tonight, we need to know that it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And in fact, every act ends in tragedy. And so we make our way to our seats and we get comfortable. And the curtains open and the first act is called. And the name of that first act is called Defiled. Defiled. The curtain the curtains open and we see in the background two figures. And then in the forefront we see three figures. Now in the back we see David and one of his servants. and then in the in the in the forefront we have Absalom and Tamar and they were full they were full brother and full sister. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verses one through three, we find that they had the same mother and David, was their father. But you also have a third person with them, and that is Amnon. Now, he was the half-brother. He was a half-brother to both of them. And chapter 2 tells us that he shared the same father with them, being David, but had a different mother. And so you have a brother, a sister, and a half-brother. And as we watch this first act take place, we see that Amnon is sick at the heart. He's, he's love sick. He wants, you see, he wants to be intimate with his half sister Tamar, and so with the help of a guy named a guy named uh, Jonadad, they put together a scheme to get Tamar into Amnon's bedroom, and we see that here in Act One in Second Samuel chapter thirteen, starting in verse eleven. Now, when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, "Come, lie with me, my sister." And we and we, as we see Amnon make these advances to Tamar, she rejects him. In verse 12, But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. We have to give her a little bit of credit here because she knew her Old Testament Bible. And if we were to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, we would read these words in a context where the word, where the word cursed is used in 12 straight verses. In Deuteronomy 27 and verse 22, Scripture reads, Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. It didn't matter if it was a full sister or a half-sister. Tamar says, we can't do this, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. This idea is mentioned also in Genesis chapter 34, where Shechem did the same thing to Jacob's Only daughter, Dinah. Her 12 brothers were not happy about that. And this puts forth the idea of a disregard to moral standards, to religious standards. And in rejecting uh, Amnon's advances, Tamar is saying, don't humble me, we should not do this in Israel. And by the way, the Bible says we shouldn't do it either. Because if we do, it would be a disregard for religious standards, religious commands. And where do we carry our shame? It's something that shouldn't be done. But, in 2 Samuel, standing in 2 Samuel 13 and verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and he lay with her. And then in verse 15, and then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her. Was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. And then in verse 16, she said, uh, Amnon wants her to leave. And then in verse 16, so she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. That's the other wrong. And I don't know if you saw that, but being. Being intimate outside marriage is something that that shouldn't be done. And it's something that disregards divine standards. And it's something that is shameful, foolish, and something that is wrong. And so it was on this occasion, we see that with Amnon and Tamar. Act 1, entitled Defiled, it starts to come to an end. But as the curtains begin to close, word is being sent to Daddy David. Verse 21 says, well, let's look what his response was. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very very angry. You know who joins David? A half-brother. A half-brother Absalom. He's quiet. He's plotting. And as the curtains close, we hear we hear the echo of crying and lamentation. Verse 19 says, And then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore a robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. All of these were gestures of sorrow. And and she went away crying aloud as she went. And the curtain closes on a note of tragedy. So as Act 1 ends, we look at our program and we notice that between Act 1 and Act 2, Two years have passed. Two years have passed. Act 2 starts and it's entitled Exiled. The curtain opens our attention. It, it opens up and our attention is given to a campfire. And around this campfire are all the sons of David. And staying in 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 23, and it came to pass that after two full years, that Absalom had sheep shears and in hazar which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. And then Absalom came to the king and said, kindly, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. And then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. And then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go, with us, and the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, and he said, "He said, Let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, and then all the king's sons arose. And each one got on his mule and fled. There they are. They're gathered around this around this campfire. Absalom gives the signal, and they they execute Amnon. Absalom waited two years, two years to get his revenge, two years to get his revenge, and then and then he he goes to Gesher for three years, and he's there in exile, away from his home, away from his family. And as the curtains begin to close on Act 2, again you hear the echo of crying and lamentation. But this time, it's not Tamar, it's David. Verse 37 says David mourned. Verse 39 says David longed to go to Absalom. You see, David was consumed with the idea of having his son back at his side because here's the thing, fathers love. Their sons. No matter what your children do, you always love them. As Act 2 ends, we read in chapter 14 and verse 1 So, Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. David's literally in a state of depression as these curtains close. Act 1, defiled. Act 2, exiled. And now we're ready for the final act, Act 3. And as I look at my program, I notice that five years have passed from where Act 2 ended and where Act 3 is going to begin. There were three years that Absalom stayed in exile with his granddaddy in Gesher. And in the first part of 2 Samuel 14, Joab secures the help of a woman from Tekoa and they encourage David to bring Absalom back home. Bring back home, and so he comes home. And verse 28 of chapter 14 tells us that Absalom dwelt in what we would call house arrest, if you will, for two full years. So three years in Gesher, two years in his own house in Jerusalem, five years we find him in exile. And the curtain opens up for act number three, the final act. The name of act number three is called Beguiled. Beguiled. This act opens with Absalom making his way to the gate of Jerusalem to deceive the hearts of a nation. In chapter 15 of Second Samuel, in verse 1, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, if you're sitting there hearing that, you're thinking, I'm, I think I've read that somewhere before. You have. In First King. In 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 5, we read about a guy named Adonijah. And verse 5 in 1 Kings chapter 1 says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. You see, Absalom, he had some intentions. This was the act of a boy that is saying, this kingdom, David's kingdom is going to be mine. He's got rebellion on his mind. He's got a coup on his mind. Absalom wakes up early and he stands by the way of the gate and it's you know, it's a popular place, it's politics as usual. And when any man had a suit which which had to come before the king for judgment, then Absalom called them to himself. And we we see in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15. Now Absalom would rouse early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right. But there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Basically, what Absalom's saying is, the king's unorganized. The kingdom's in a mess. There's no one to hear your grievances. But if I were king, things would be different. In verse 4, more, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to to bow down to Absalom, to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. You see, Absalom wouldn't allow people to fall at his feet. He wouldn't let people think that they were inferior to him or that he was superior to them. And he did this to everyone. And in so doing, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He beguiled them. He beguiled them. And he says in the verses that follow, "I need to go to Hebron." Verse seven there. Verse seven says, "It came to pass after forty years." That's not true. It should be four. 1 Kings, two and verse eleven tells us that David only reigned for forty years, so it should be four. So for four years, Absalom, for four years, Absalom had been scheming. He he's been plotting. He's been doing this, and now he needs to go to Hebron. Now why? did he need to go to Hebron. Hebron was his hometown. Hebron is where Absalom was born. And you know where you're born, that's a special place. That's a special place. For you history people, Is also the first capital of David. So what's on Absalom's mind? He wants to create a rebellion, civil war. And so he goes to Hebron because he knows he'll be accepted there. And having all the hearts of Israel, he's now ready to set things in motion. Rebellion. And so it does. But the rebellion doesn't doesn't go the way he thought it would go. It turns sour. And that civil war that he was trying to create turns on him. He winds up falling in a forest. His life is taken. And as Act 3 comes to an end, and the curtains close, Again, if we listen carefully, we can hear the cries and the lamentation of someone. Second Samuel chapter 18 and verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said this, "And if you've got children, you can, you can put yourself in David's shoes." Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died in your place, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. David did that five times. And the tragedy comes to an end. It began with a half-brother defiling a half-sister. And it proceeded with a half-brother running and hiding in exile. And then it concluded with Absalom coming back from exile and beguiling the hearts of the people of Israel. And through it all, through every bit of it, you have a daddy who's in the wings and is having his heart torn to shreds. When we study, when we study David and Tamar and Amnon and Absalom. We're reading about a time in a man's life when his children disappointed him. Now, why does that happen? Why do those times happen? Why do good people sometimes have bad children? Why does that happen? I might would like to suggest tonight that from the examples that we've been studying, and by the way, we know this was not a play, this really did happen, This was a real-to-life tragedy with the consequences, first, of David's sin that we read about in chapter 12. But if we turn back to our tragedy that we started in, chapter 13, we're going to find two answers to the question, why do good parents sometimes have bad children? First off, we have to realize that our children are impacted by a variety of influences outside of the home. Now, I can do my dead level best as a daddy, but I have to come to grips that I will not be the only person who influences or impacts Luca's life. If we look back in 2 Samuel 13, in verse 3, we read about an influence. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah. David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now, it was that friend that put together, helped put together the scheme to get Tamar into Amnon's bedroom. And there you have Amnon being influenced by a friend, influenced to disappoint his daddy by doing something that he knew was wrong. And not only a friend, but in verse 12, Tamar told Amnon, no my brother, do not force me for such a thing should not be done in Israel. You see these things that he was trying to do were done by the world. They were not supposed to be done in Israel. Amnon's desires were crafted by the desires of the world. He was feeling like the people of Israel uh, the the people outside of Israel felt. And if we turn over to Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 7, he knew this. Amnon knew that 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 God's word said, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and, and she sees his nakedness, it's It's a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. She, uh, he shall bear his guilt. And then if we come down to verse 23, and you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation, which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things. and and therefore I abhor them. The world did as Amnon wanted to do. And the world influenced him to carry on with this scheme. And he was influenced by a friend. And he was influenced by worldly desires to disappoint his daddy in doing what was wrong. And unfortunately today, our children are negatively influenced by friends and the world as well. I think about someone like Barnabas. In Acts 11, Barnabas is called a good man by the Holy Spirit. But then in Galatians 2, we see that Paul writes that Barnabas played the hypocrite because his friends were playing the hypocrite. And then we read about a guy like uh, by the name of Demas who, who was described as a fellow worker of Paul in Colossians 4 and verse 4. But Paul said of Demas later, he forsook me having loved the present world. Barnabas was influenced to do wrong by his friend. Demas was influenced to do wrong because of the world. It happened to them. And it can happen to our families, brothers and sisters. It can happen to our children. Mom and dad. How important is it to have our pulses on the on, 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 every influence that comes in to to affect our children. If my child was attending a school where they were being taught an error, what would I do to change that? If I come home and I see my kids playing a video game that puts forth the idea that tries to in some kind of way lessen, uh, lessen concepts like murder and those kind of things, shouldn't I pull the plug on that? if I learned that my my son or my daughter were hanging out with kids that were trying to take them away from the Lord, shouldn't I step in? Shouldn't I try to help that kid? Yes. But shouldn't I keep a close watch on these influences that are affecting my child? You see, the Bible says children obey your parents. But that says as much about parents as it does children. We as parents have to put forth something for them to obey. It's called parental authority. And I need to be careful about the influences brought into my home and those outside my home that impact my children. And the second, the second answer to our question, why do good people sometimes have bad children? We have to understand that our children are people too. They have likes and dislikes of their own. They're gonna make their own choices in life, and sometimes maybe not the choices that we want them to make. Second Samuel 13 and verse 2: Amnon was he was distressed, he was vexed. Okay, he was he was sick because of Tamar. We look at his ungodly desires; those were his desires. Tamar refused. That was her desire. Amnon forced her anyway. In verse 22, says Absalom hated Amnon. Those were his feelings, his desires. These three individuals, unique within themselves, all with specific choices made in life. See, our children, brothers and sisters, our children, they're going to make certain choices in life. And I, as a parent, can only put forth every effort possible to make sure that they use the Bible as the criteria for making those choices. Sometimes we labor under a false, under a false concept. Sometimes we believe that if I do if I do my, my my the best job I can do, if I do right by my children, then my children sooner or later are going to be right. Proverbs twenty two, and verse sixteen says, oh, one page too far." He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Brothers and sisters, that's just that's a proverb. That's not right 100% of the time. Chuck laid this one on me a little bit earlier. Chuck said, told me another proverb says, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. He said that's not right 100% of the time. Y'all notice Sharon ain't here tonight. There's some wives that would tell you the opposite. All we have to do is go to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to prove this fact. In Matthew Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, and I'm going to butcher some of these names, but I'm going to try anyway. Rehoboam begot uh, Abijah. That's a bad dad and a bad son. That sounds right, right? A bad dad and a bad son. We understand that, but then we read that Abijah. uh, beget Asha, a bad dad, having a good son. Now that blows our theory out of the water. And then we read about Asha begetting Jehoshaphat, a good dad, having a good son. Now we're back on track. But then we read about Jehoshaphat begetting uh, Joram, a good dad, having a bad son. And just those few examples from the genealogy of Jesus, we see that it's not necessarily going to be true that if I'm a good parent, I'm going to have good children. But I've got to make every effort possible to make sure that they are influenced properly and that the Bible beats inside of their heart. I've got to do everything in my power to make sure that happens. So as we close tonight, in the words of, in the words of Psalm one nineteen in verse 11. Scripture says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Brothers and sisters, I need to be certain that I do everything that I can. Everything that I can do as a daddy. That if a day ever comes that my children do disappoint me, I can still hold my head up high. And I can still call their name before God. And that He hears. I know He hears. And that He cares about the torment of my soul when that happens. And if it ever happens, may we all continuously put the names of these children up before God. The greatest gift that I can give my children is to be a Christian mom. To be a Christian dad. Tonight we talked about disappointment. And it's, it's refreshing to know that God does not disappoint us. We disappoint our children. Our children disappoint us. But God never disappoints us. And when we look at all the promises that God's made us, we know that if we would, be, if we would just believe in Him and repent of our sins and then put a son on in baptism, we know that the greatest promise is there if we yet would take the step forward to take it. Let's not wait. If you're in here tonight, and you haven't put Christ on in baptism, it's the perfect time. It's the perfect time, brothers and sisters. Don't hold back. Come forward when we stand and we sing.